you will, you can go ahead and begin turning in God's Word to John chapter 19. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, as this has to do with the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And we've all heard lots of sermons and talks about this passage. And so I'm going to kind of go a little different route with it, rather than talk about the intricacies of what crucifixion is, the pain and suffering of our Lord, which we will talk about. I want to focus on, I think, what is the main idea here, and that's just the idea of authority. and Who, who do we place our authority in, and where the Lord Jesus gets his authority. And so before we go to the Word, let's go to him in prayer, ask for his help. <coughs> Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, as we come to this story about your death, help us to be reverent, help us to be mindful of what we are reading. Uh, We can't possibly understand the depth of the agony, the suffering, the torture that you went through as you went through it for your people. We we can't understand it. We, We can't even begin to. And so, Lord... Help us to see not only our sin here and where we fall short, but also your grace and your mercy, your truth, your goodness, as you did this, as you hung on that cross, so that we might be saved. So open your word to us, guide us through it, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I read through this passage this week, I was reminded of the daily drama that I see unfold at the high school where I teach, and then even the daily drama that I see unfold in my own house with my with my kids. Uh, you guys have all met my children, so you know there's some drama there. And I think particularly with the kids' relationships with each other, I'm fascinated by it as they yell at one another and different things. I'm continually struck by the same idea, that it's amazing who we give authority over our lives too. For the high school students, they allow their friends largely to dictate their choices and what they believe, and they'll do that very quickly. It starts on a social level, and I think we all get this to a basic degree, right? It's easier to go with the flow rather than to swim against it, and so it starts maybe with little things like music and clothing and these kinds of harmless things that we all do. We're not dressing in leisure suits anymore, and so we kind of do this thing naturally. But it can be bigger things, right, as to how we treat a particular person when everyone else is treating them badly, or what we consume at a party, even, which is a, is a high school deal. And for my kids, it's quite a bit more toned down, obviously, because they're a lot younger, but it's similar. It starts with a gentle gesture of, hey, let's all do this together, as the three of them go off to do something together, but usually finishes with one of them being the boss, and the other ones being some sort of victim in this great injustice in the world being taken place, where one person is telling another person what to do, and there's this constant yelling back and forth. You guys know what I'm talking about. In both cases, what's going on? We are giving people authority over us that actually have no real authority. High school students' authority is derived from their home. However, They give it to their friends all the time, and they let their friends dictate what they're doing. My kid's authority is dictated by myself, by my wife. However, they still think that there's some injustice happening when 
they demand what each other should do. We allow these things to happen. And we know how this translates to the real world, right? It becomes more an abstract concept that rules us. Things like connections and money and possessions, credentials, security, health. All these things that we give authority to to dictate how we feel, how we treat other people, how, why, we worship them. They are our gods, and we are their people. It's the basic sin of idolatry, right? The first commandment is the one that we struggle with the most. Yet all the while, our Lord and our Creator, Jesus Christ, went to the cross for us, his people. And so in today's passage, as we read this account, we're going to see Jesus going to the cross for his idolatrous people. And we get this first-hand glimpse with the people in the story of this idolatry, the sinister nature by which it rears its head. And so as we work through this passage, I want you all to be looking for these ideas come to the light. And we'll consider this text in two points, how in our sin we worship a false king with no real authority, and how Jesus is the king of kings with all authority. And so as we come to the text, let's please stand together as we read it. John chapter 19, starting at verse 1. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and set him at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, bearing his own cross, 
to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha. They crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see who shall, whose it shall be. This went to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing by her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced him with the side, in the side with a spear, and once, and once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they took... On, they, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had been yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So remember from our previous passage in John, where Jesus had an interaction with Pilate, Pilate came away from this conversation a bit flummoxed. Remember Jesus, he was left asking Jesus one of the big questions that everyone has to answer. What is truth? Jesus told us what truth is in John 17, among other times, when he asked the Father to sanctify them and your truth. Your word is truth. 
And so as a quick aside, there's a controversy spinning right now in evangelicalism and in the church at large caused by the comments of a prominent pastor who essentially said we should stop saying the Bible says and instead just trust in the resurrection of Jesus and the eyewitness accounts of that. This really happened. This is not a new heresy. It's been around since the early days of the church. Now we just call it plain old liberalism. And I only mention this because it is important for us to remember that we know what we know about Jesus because of the scriptures. We don't depend on any outside information. We, whether it be some sort of ancient historian, Christian or not, it doesn't matter, or someone who is an expert on crucifixions or someone's accounting of the resurrection and why it must be true because we have all these outside witnesses, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be true because Scripture says they are. That's it. And whenever we get off those rails, we soon start walking down the wide road that leads to our destruction. So we need to be careful. We will stick with Scripture. Not to say that it's not beneficial to study those other things, history and Roman government and their various torture methods and whatever tickles our fancy. This is all good stuff to study. But when it comes to the truth concerning our Lord Jesus and his life and his redemptive work, this is where we come, to the Scriptures alone. And so with that, in our sin, we worship a false king with no authority at all. And I think first here, we see we want a Savior on our own terms. We see that Pilate has Jesus flogged there in verse 1, and then following, he's mocked by the Roman soldiers. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe around him to signify his royalty, or they're making fun of him calling himself royalty. They even strike him on the face. The creatures mocking their creator because they have another king, Caesar. And I think, brothers and sisters, we have to be careful, because when I read this, it angers me to think that our Lord Jesus was just struck by these random men. However, let's not put ourselves in a different camp than these soldiers, because this is also the nature of our sin, mockery. Our sin is a mockery to our Creator. Because it says to him that we want a, his, a relationship with him on our terms. If he's going to tell us what to do, we're not going to obey that. We're going to do our own thing. And so that is mocking him just like these soldiers were doing. We're not striking him on the face physically, but we might as well be. Pilate brings him out after he's beat him up, after the, the soldiers have beat him up. And says, see, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He came out and he says, behold the man. If you ask me attempting to garner some sympathy from the Jewish leaders, look, he's innocent. He's no king. He's, he's nothing. What do they return with? Crucify him. Crucify him. And we'd be there too, were it not for the grace of God that took us from death to life, from hatred of our Creator to loving Him. And so again, let's not place ourselves in some other boat 
that's able to judge these men who were making fun of Jesus, who were demanding his crucifixion. We would do the same. We want a Savior that has no authority. This is what they wanted. Pilate wanted them to crucify him, right? He says, no, you guys do that. You crucify him. More and more wanting nothing to do with Jesus. You can kind of get this, this feeling. They, they want, he wants nothing to do with Jesus. We, they said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And after Pilate's had this interaction with him, Pilate's beginning to believe this, if you ask me. He's beginning to believe this about Jesus. It scares him, is what the scripture says, that he's more afraid. So he goes back in to speak with Jesus, which we'll get to a little bit later. He attempts to release him again, but the people throw now his own laws back at him and his own God, Caesar. Remember, Caesar was not only the Roman ruler, but he was deity, essentially, to the Roman people. They should worship him. He should be worshipped, just like any other god should be worshipped, Caesar. And so they throw that back at him. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is the Jewish leadership doing this. Basically, they're saying, Jesus says he's a king, Pilate. Would you make yourself a king by usurping the laws of Caesar? Are you not his friend? So Pilate offers them, offers Jesus to them, says, Behold, your king. And they shout, crucify him, away with him, all the more. Why? Well, they tell us why. They tell us why. We have no king but Caesar from the mouth of Jewish lips. And is this what it comes to? Think about the Old Testament. Here in this city, in Jerusalem, that King David used to call his own. And now the one whom David looked forward to and worshipped, looked forward to the day that Jesus would come, David called his Savior his Lord. And now these people stand before him and they want Caesar, the God and ruler of their captors. Is this any different for Israel? No. Caesar has no real authority, and they know it. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship the creature rather than the creator. It's all Romans 1. We read that last time. Remember the Exodus? What did the people want to do? They got out in the wilderness. Instead of trusting their Lord and their God, they said, hey, we want to go back to Egypt, where we were slaves, because they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. What about in Judges? We preached from Judges last week. What did they want to do? After a little bit of time, they returned to the Baals and the Asheroths, the gods of their captors. What about now, 2016? Are we different today? We don't have Baals, Asheroths. We don't have Egypt. We have Egypt, but not the same. What are we, stick what are we looking for today? Health, wealth, comfort. These are the keys to the kingdom, right? The only authority that these false gods have is the authority to destroy us. And they'll do it every single time. 
Fast forward 40 years from now, where these people are now saying, we have no king but Caesar from the Jewish lips. Fast forward 40 years, what happens to Jerusalem? Rome comes in and burns it to the ground. And they have no God but Caesar. So Christian, don't think for a minute that your false gods are any less powerful. They'll break you down, but they can only do that for you. That is it. They can only kill, steal, and destroy. The one who brings life is the one that we mock with our continued idolatry. And so, let us repent. He is faithful, even when we are faithless. And again, why do we do this? We want to be our own Savior. Pilate wrote, King of the Jews, only an inscription above the cross where Jesus hung. Of course, this bothered the chief priest. There's Jesus hanging there on the cross, suffering and tortured. They're like, wait, well, this this isn't technically what's going on. See, he, he actually said that. He's not the king of the Jews. Pilate refused to change it, though. Sometimes I think that Pilate might have come around to the gospel later in life. We don't know. I hope he did. But it seems like he kind of gets who Jesus is, at least at some level, as much as any unbeliever can. So as Jesus hangs there dying, get this, as Jesus hangs there dying, the soldiers are now dividing his clothes, casting lots over this tunic, while nearby his mother and his friends grieve. It's incredible how we become so calloused and single-minded in our devotion to whatever it is that replaces our Lord. These soldiers are probably hoping to make a quick bit of silver for these garments, Filling their pockets was more important than saving their souls. It's pretty incredible. We do read in another gospel how one soldier confesses Jesus as the Son of God here at the foot of the cross. We'll look at that in a second. However, these soldiers are a picture of us. And don't miss that. What are they fighting over? They're fighting over the scraps. They're fighting over the leftovers. When we've been invited to dine at the table of our Creator... We are fighting over the things that will pass away. We ultimately want to determine our own destiny. We don't want any authority other than our own. We want to save ourselves. And we'll fight over the tiniest little scrap if it means that we don't have to bow to our Lord. So brothers and sisters, what I hope you're seeing is how our continued battle with sin in this world is still a direct assault on the throne of God. However, we no longer stand condemned because of what he's did for us. Praise be to God. But let us not forget what he did for us. And it may take us to see this account more often than we do. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, here's another account of the crucifixion. Mark 15, 33 through 41. I'll read this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this the way that he had breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. We'll stop there. Truly, this man was the Son of God. What did this man, this unbeliever, come away with when he saw what Jesus had gone through, when he saw how Jesus reacted, when he saw how Jesus was on the cross? Truly, this man was the Son of God. He came away with an understanding of where true authority lies. And so, Lord, help us to do the same. And so that brings us to the last point. Jesus is the King of kings with all the authority. And in that, he has the authority to give up his own life. The Creator allows himself to be subject to beatings and ridicule of his creatures. We read this in our confession today. Betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, and so forth, as you read through that list. Remember, we read a few weeks ago that Jesus could call down all of heaven upon the earth if he chose. But he, go, he, he goes willingly to the cross, and he alone has the authority to do that. And then you have his conversation with Pilate. Remember, Pilate goes back in after having this wave of terror come over him concerning the Lord Jesus. I think Pilate knew who Jesus was. I honestly do as much as any unbeliever can. Jesus doesn't answer this question about his origins, but Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers them. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Don't you love this, how Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to do this as if Jesus somehow needed his permission to act? This verse that Jesus says that you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you should comfort us, I think, in this election season. But it should also comfort us here. Pilate has no authority other than that which Jesus has given to him. Jesus holds all the cards, every one of them, yet he chooses to lose the game anyway. He has the authority to pronounce the redemptive work finished as well. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He asks for a drink. He says, I thirst, so that he'll be able to shout out this last pronouncement before he dies. I love this here that we read. Why is he doing this? He says, well, after this, Jesus, knowing that all that all was now to be finished in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus knew that all was about to be finished so that when did the payment of our sins take place on the cross? Jesus shouts out, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit again, only as he can do. He came to do the work 
he had the authority to come as he did, as man, as God in the flesh. He had the authority to lay down his own life. He had the authority to have his sacrifice be the payment for the sins of his people, and it was. And so this does a couple of things to our own authority concerning our salvation. It eliminates our authority to set the terms of our salvation. In the New Testament church, what did they want those terms to be? They wanted circumcision to be added to the plate. Well, you can be saved, trust in Jesus, and be circumcised. They tried to do that. We try to make our own goodness be a substitute oftentimes. A lot of times, too, we try to make Jesus simply a a player in our own salvation, giving ourselves the ultimate authority over whether or not we can somehow bring ourselves to life from our death and our trespasses and our sins. Jesus is the sole actor. He is the sole winner of our redemption. He did it. He has the authority to do it. However, this also gives us the authority to say of our guilt and our shame, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because our redemption is finished. I no longer have to feel condemned. I no longer have to feel guilty. And I can say that with all authority. I sin. I'm a sinner. Yes, but I am not condemned. Praise be to God. Only a salvation purchased by the Lord himself can do both of those things. So we loudly proclaim Christ alone. But we also loudly proclaim that my sins are nailed to the cross and remembered no more. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Let's read this from one of the apostles. Colossians chapter 2. Because we have to be careful that we don't look at this, this passage and feel some sort of guilt and shame for his death. Yes, our sin caused his death. But in Christ, we no longer have condemnation. Look at Colossians two thirteen through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we have victory over these sins because of what Christ did for us. And lastly, I want to see that his word, he has the authority to have his word return a harvest. Notice what's going on in this passage. There are numerous little things that are going on. And over and over again, the apostle tells us that these things occurred so that scripture would be fulfilled, so that his word would be fulfilled. Multiple prophecies concerning his death and his torture become true right here in this passage. And yes, he orchestrated it to be so. The word was written about him, therefore he alone can see it come to fruition. I've argued with people who are unbelievers at various levels 
And they'll say, well, Jesus read those prophecies and then he made them come true. That's why they came true. Yes. Who else had the authority to do so? Jesus alone made this right because it is his word from time and all eternity. Even down to his legs not being broken, to his side being pierced. All of these things to fulfill scripture. Who has the authority to see this happen? The one who spoke creation into existence. The one who spoke and his words are recorded for us. And look there at the last little section. You want to see his word living and active, returning, not void, but doing what he purposed it to do? Who do we see there in the last section? Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who was there with Joseph of Arimathea. Apparently, a new disciple of the truth. We see that his word does not return void. Nicodemus had a conversation with Jesus, and that conversation made him alive. The word of the Lord is living and active. And for Nicodemus, it purchased for him a new birth. I believe that we'll see Nicodemus among the multitude in heaven because the word of the Lord is doing exactly as the Lord intended. So in conclusion, what about for us? Do we continue to battle against these false authorities in our lives, whatever we've made them to be? Or do we bow before our Creator in repentance and be forgiven for our idolatry? For the believer, this is a daily exercise in repentance, is it not? Again, this repentance is not to purchase our redemption every day. Jesus did that once and for all. We don't need to go to him every day to find redemption. But to daily remember the fact that our Savior died for us. He subjected himself to torture and death so that we might have redemption. And if you haven't done that yet, repented of your idolatry, your sin, you haven't called upon the name of the Lord, do that today. Be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, and be saved. As for our lives as believers, we have the promise that we didn't purchase our redemption, nor can we in any way invalidate the terms of it. It is forever, and we are his forever, thanks be to God. And so we can minister with confidence to a lost world. Even a Pharisee like Nicodemus, or perhaps even Pilate, can come to the realization that there is a king, and we are not him. Our ministry to the lost changes when we rest upon the idea that Jesus can make his word happen. We need only be faithful preachers and ministers of it. So let us do that in this community here in Murray so that the kingdom of God might grow, that the gospel might go forth. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, there are so many things that we give authority over in our lives, give authority to. We are constantly worried about this and that because we honestly don't trust you. And so, Lord, we are sorry. Help us. Help us to turn away from that, to trust you and you alone, to see you as the authority over us. You laid down your life that we might have redemption, that all things might be made new, including us. We are a new creation. Help us to live as if that is true. It's in your name we pray. Amen.